to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, here we are in another week that is chock full of news, good and bad, and most of it, at least in this part of the world, is related to the upcoming elections. We are now less than two weeks away from the election of our lifetime, when we get to choose between democracy and free enterprise and socialism and the end of our freedoms as they were guaranteed by our Constitution. The choice seems pretty simple, doesn't it? And yet, there are millions of people in this country who seem to want socialism, or they hate President Trump so much that they just don't care who wins as long as he goes. They're determined to vote against Donald Trump, which means, given no other choices, they'll vote for Joe Biden, or they'll stay home and not vote at all. And they're mad as hell at anyone who doesn't agree with them. The mainstream media, they're the folks who are supposed to be telling us the unbiased news. And they are completely in the pro-Biden, anti-Trump camp. They report only the news that supports Biden and trashes Trump. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But first, let's take a look at some of the issues. What are the most important issues that are energizing voters today? Abortion, guns, marriage, religion, and immigration. And you know what's really weird? Not one of these issues was mentioned in either the first debate or the so-called town halls. Not once. But they did come up during the confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett last week. That's all the Democrats talked about. And they hammered Judge Barrett on Roe v. Wade and the Affordable Care Act and a little bit on guns and religion. But not one of the moderators in the campaign debates or in the dueling town halls brought up any of these issues. Not one. We all know where the president stands on these issues. He hasn't hidden his opinion. In fact, he's made it quite clear. On the subject of immigration, the candidates also disagree on virtually every issue. One of the starkest differences is the very definition of the word immigration. The Democrats, and this includes Biden as well as most of the Democrat Party, use the word immigration inclusively. That means anyone who enters our country from any other country, period. The president, on the other hand, makes a very clear distinction between legal immigration and illegal immigration. And most of the people that we're talking about when we discuss what the Democrats call immigration are the illegal immigrants who were, until the president built the border wall, coming up from Central America in huge caravans and flowing over the border in record numbers. It's interesting that the Trump administration focuses its energies on deregulation in almost every area, but the one area where he's put up more restrictions is in the area of illegal immigration, and his wall is to keep the flow of illegal immigrants down to the minimum, and it's been very successful so far. On the other hand, Biden is promoting regulation in virtually every other area, but illegal immigration isn't one of them. 
Biden wants to relax immigration policies and adopt a model where every type of immigrant would be able to gain access to government resources and a path to citizenship. That means if California is a model for this program, citizens would pay the freight for the cost of supporting illegal immigrants with welfare, health care, education, and so forth. There's the subject of guns. Trump has designated businesses that sell and service guns to be critical infrastructure during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that means that he's allowed them to remain open while other businesses have been forced to close. And you know what, frankly, in light of the riots and the downright danger on city streets over the last few months, that seems like a darn good idea. And something else about Trump. After the 2018 massacre at Parkland High School in Florida, the president even suggested that teachers who were, quote, adept, unquote, with guns should be allowed to carry them in schools as a further layer of protection for the students. That, too, is not such a bad idea. I know, because during the 16 years that I spent in Israel, I provided school security at an elementary school in Jerusalem. There had been some horrendous terrorist attacks against Israeli schools over the years, but just the fact that there was armed security at the schools cut the terrorism against them to zero. President Trump doesn't have a problem with legally owned guns handled with care and used appropriately, like on a range or for self-defense when necessary. He believes that the Second Amendment is here for a purpose, to help citizens defend themselves from criminals and also from a tyrannical government. The NRA has endorsed Trump. They said, quote, You promise to defend the Second Amendment and stand tall for the constitutional freedoms in which our members believe. You have delivered on your promise in extraordinary ways, unquote. Joe Biden, on the other hand, spearheaded Obama's efforts for tighter gun control after the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newton, Connecticut. Biden's plan proposed universal background checks and new bans on semi-automatic rifles and magazines that contain more than 10 bullets. It even called for background checks on the purchase of ammunition, but it failed in the Senate. And now... He has said that he will name Beto O'Rourke to handle what he calls the gun problem. You remember Beto O'Rourke. He ran for president in last year's Democratic primaries. He's the one who said, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47, unquote. And then there's the subject of abortion. We all know how Joe Biden feels. Although he says he's a practicing Catholic, and he may be, he has come out squarely on the side of pro-abortion. They call it pro-choice, but the baby has no choice. They call it woman's health care, but they're killing a baby. They call it woman's controlling her own body. But once that body has a baby within her, he or she also has a body, and that needs to be protected as well. Last year, Biden attended Mass at St. Anthony Catholic Church in Florence, South Carolina, and he was refused a sacrament because, as the Reverend Robert Morey said, any public figure who advocates for abortion places himself or herself outside the church teaching, unquote. That's pretty harsh, but it's what the church believes. 
On the other hand, Donald Trump freely admits that he has changed his mind on the subject of abortion, and his opinion on the subject is still somewhat ambiguous. But last month, he signed an executive order in which he required the Health and Human Services Department to ensure that all federally funded facilities provide life-saving medical care for infants who survive abortions, period. That seems pretty obvious to me that they should, but last year, New York and Virginia both approved a mother's right to abort babies, meaning kill them, after they've been born. I would call that murder. So the president's executive order was a step in the right direction. The Republicans tried to put the president's order into law. They had a bill called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Act. But House Democrats, who held the majority, refused to approve it. If it had been approved, it would have applied penalties to doctors who refused to provide life-saving care to survivors of abortion. It seems pretty straightforward. What in the world is wrong with the Democrats that they are okay with killing newborn babies? So as far as I'm concerned, the choice is clear. If you love America, and I'm talking about the America that we grew up in, whose hopes and dreams are all wrapped up in the constitutional values that made this country great, if you love that America, then the choice is very clear. Donald Trump stands tall for that America. And that's where my vote is going. But if you're okay in taking America down the road to socialism, a system that has failed every time it's been tried, with Joe Biden, who has promised to raise your taxes, open your borders, shut down our fossil fuel energy producers and kill millions of jobs, as well as making us once again energy dependent on other countries, and imposing countless new regulations on our private lives, then I guess you'll vote for Sleepy Joe. You know what really puzzles me? That some of the loudest voices for socialist programs who are fighting against the president's successful economic comeback in the last few years are themselves super wealthy. That's one of the biggest problems with socialists. The elites don't suffer under that system. They just control it. Only the average guy, the hardworking middle class, and, all, and the poor all become poor together, while the rich thrive on their suffering. It is a sick and a cruel system, and it has no place in America. Okay, now, the biggest story to hit the news this week, and it may be the biggest story for a long time, is one that only the conservative press is talking about now. And the social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter, are censoring it. And they've prevented their users from sending it on to their followers or friends. Users of Google couldn't link to that story in the New York Post when it first came out. This is the story of a growing scandal surrounding Hunter Biden, his former partners Devin Archon and Bevan Cooney, and former Vice President Joe Biden. The social media companies have gone too far. Facebook, Twitter, maybe others. But by withholding legitimate news reports about one of the candidates, the one they decided was their pick, they're interfering with the upcoming election, plain and simple. That, my friends, is totally unacceptable. And here's why. 
There's a deep silence on the part of the press and in the social media that won't publish any story that puts their candidate, Joe Biden, in a bad light. They simply withhold any stories that are detrimental to his campaign, and they refuse to report them. The same thing cannot be said for stories that are detrimental to Trump, of course. In fact, those are broadcast freely and as widely as possible. But that, my friends, is likely to come to an abrupt halt because when this story becomes so big that they can't ignore it, they're going to have to cover it. They may not do it fairly, they may not do it accurately, but they are going to have to cover it. And what comes out of this story, which is growing bigger every day, not only implicates Hunter and his two partners, but it also implicates his father, who is, of course, the Democrat candidate for president. They've been trying to paint Trump as a crook from day one, before day one, before he was even elected. But now the truth comes out that the real crook is Joe Biden. And the press will still do whatever it takes to make Joe Biden's win on November 3rd a reality. Well, frankly, I'm sick of it. There is too much at stake in this election, and the American people have a right to hear it all. These companies have opened the doors to this new form of communication, social media, and they should not be allowed to pick and choose which free speech is okay. In the meantime, Joe Biden has refused to talk about any of it. He may not remember that he is actually right in the middle of the story. In fact, although Hunter is the villain in this story, it is Joe Biden who is the story. So here's a quick synopsis of the story, at least the beginning of it. Hunter Biden had two partners. One was Bevan Cooney, and the other was Devin Archer. You may remember Archer's name because his name came up in connection to the Burisma scandal in Ukraine. He was sitting on the board with Hunter Biden of this energy company, and they were both earning huge salaries for no particular reason, except that Hunter Biden was the son of the vice president of the United States. They also were active in China. And Hunter Biden used his father's access to the Chinese government to land a billion-dollar deal with a company in China that was owned by the Chinese government. Well, these guys were involved in a whole lot of stuff, and uh, it turns out that both Cooney and Archer were convicted in federal court of crimes that were connected to some kind of financial dealings that they had with Hunter Biden. Well, about two weeks ago, Archer's sentence was vacated by a federal judge, but Cooney's was not. So, this is just my guess, Cooney realized he'd been abandoned by the Bidens, and he got back at them by giving a journalist access to some 26,000 emails that revealed all the sordid details of the corruption of the Biden family. Archer's sentence was reimposed a few days later. But the cat, as they say, was already out of the bag. Cooney released 26,000 emails connected with all three men and Joe Biden himself in a web of elaborate schemes 
to use the former vice president's influence to get really, really rich. If there's any doubt about the corruption of the Biden family, all the dirt is about to come out. Biden Inc. clearly parlayed Joe Biden's position as vice president to enrich the entire family and a bunch of friends. I'm looking forward to the next installment of the story. 26,000 emails is a lot to get through. I just hope the story gets out before the election so it will make a difference. Now I have to take a short break, but when I come back, we're going to do something a little bit different from our usual show. Instead of reporting on and analyzing the news, which is frankly getting uglier by the day, I'm going to lighten the mood a little bit. I'm going to interview someone whom I think is very interesting. I have an interview for the next two segments with a young man who left his job and is spending the year in Israel, in the year of the coronavirus. So stay tuned. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Now today we're going to do something a little different. I have a guest with me and we're going to talk about things that we don't usually talk about. It has nothing to do with American politics, so just take a deep breath and relax My guest today is Daniel Schwartz. I've known Daniel for a long time, and for most of his adult life, Daniel has been a computer programmer who worked in the industry. But at some point he said, I guess I've had enough of this. I want something new. And Daniel is now taking a sabbatical year and spending it in Israel. He grew up in Israel and he went through the Israeli army there. But he returned to the U.S. as a young adult and spent the next 30 years in Massachusetts. Now he is doing something that I think is very interesting, and I want to share it with you. This year, Daniel and his family are spending the year in Jerusalem, where he is getting his master's degree at Hebrew University. They left in early August, and I wanted to find out how they're doing. So I asked him to come on the show and tell us what it's like being in Jerusalem during the coronavirus, how his studies are going, and what he expects from his year in Israel. So let me introduce you to my guest today, Daniel Schwartz. Hi, Daniel. What made you decide to go to Israel and spend a year there with all of your family? It sounds complicated. 
Tell us how you got to Israel in the first place. How, what made you decide on this program? And what was the process of getting from Boston to Jerusalem? Well, I, you may recall that I spent a number of years in Israel when I was growing up. I moved back to the United States, got married there, had some kids there. And my wife, who also has an Israeli background, she and I had decided some time back that we would like to spend a sabbatical year in Israel for a number of reasons. Both of us wanted to reconnect with our roots a little bit. Both of us wanted to expose the children to this so that Israel would be a real place for them and not just that far off weird country that mom and dad keep blathering on about. How old are your children? Well, we brought the three boys with us and they are 10, 12 and 17. The plan was to bring them here and put them in Israeli public schools and uh, move forward with that. But there was a lot that had to happen first. Spending a sabbatical year abroad, it turns out it's a big deal. We basically cleaned out our Boston house completely, put a lot of stuff in storage, rented out the house. My wife and I both sold our cars, a bunch of other things that had to be done there. I was not working at the time. And in fact, the plan had been that I would come to Israel and I would spend the year in a one-year MBA program through Hebrew University. Hebrew University does have a very highly regarded one-year MBA program. This particular specialization is called International 360 Degrees, focusing on entrepreneurship and innovation. So I signed up for that. I was, to my delight, I was accepted to that. And then we had to do this serious business of getting ready for the trip. A lot of trials and tribulations along the way. My, my wife and I both have Israeli citizenship in addition to American citizenship. The kids did not, although they're entitled to it as children of Israeli citizens. Getting the paperwork from the, Ameri from the Israeli consulate in Boston was rather tricky. We, we were able to make it happen, but uh, it was a bit touch and go for a while there. While we were doing all of that and cleaning out the house and selling the cars and so forth and so on, perhaps I should go back and explain that the reason I made a big deal about the Israeli passports was because in this wonderful time of coronavirus that we are in, a number yeah. of countries are on serious lockdown, Israel among others. And this is perhaps the first time in my life that an American passport has not been seen as an asset in the international community. That's interesting. Usually you hold up an American passport and doors open for you. These days you hold up an American passport and people want nothing to do with you. So I knew that I could bring my family to Israel on Israeli passports and we would be welcomed in as citizens that have just been abroad for a while. But on the American passports, it would have been a nightmare of red tape. So getting the Israeli passports for us was important. So back to the adventure here. We had this interesting time. I wound up putting in all sorts of phone calls to various airlines saying, hi, I'd like to buy five airplane tickets for uh, two adults, a 17-year-old and two under 12 year old kids. They were under 12 at the time. And I need to transport a dog and two cats. <laughs> at which point I started my education in what it's like to fly internationally with pets. I found out that there are some airlines that refuse to travel with a dog at all. British Airways wanted nothing to do with me. Delta Airlines, if I remember correctly, they have, they have a long history of traveling with pets, but they shut that down for the time being. I asked, will you allow me to travel with a dog? They said, no. I said, will this open up at some point in the future? They said, we have no idea. 
For now, no dogs. You fly with us, no dogs. Okay, I guess we're not flying Delta. I was able to buy uh, reasonably priced tickets with um, Turkish Air. That would, and I and I negotiated on the phone for hours with them Yikes. to make sure that yes, they have room in the cargo hold for my dog, both for the travel from Boston to Istanbul and then from Istanbul to Tel Aviv. I need to make sure there's room for the dog in both of those flights. We're not abandoning the dog in Istanbul. No, we're not. And once I'd arranged for all of that and made the payment and so forth, then Turkish Air canceled the flight. <laughs> oh, gee. I got a text message on my phone in the middle of the night saying, hi, Turkish Air has canceled your flight. Have a nice day. <laughs> so I called Turkish Air and said, what's going on? They said, we've canceled the flight. I said, okay, can you reschedule me for the same flight the following day? They said, no, we can't. We canceled that one also. Are there any flights to Tel Aviv that you have not canceled? No. Okay, oh I guess I'm not flying Turkish Air. I started working the phones again. What airlines will accept a dog and two cats? I was working on the implicit assumption that just about all of the airlines will accept two adults and three kids. Anyway, so I had quite the telephone adventure of booking airline tickets and then getting them canceled and booking airline tickets on a different airline, getting them canceled and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. In the end, we wound up flying United because they had direct nonstop flights. One of my children is special needs. He has Down syndrome. Yeah. And the people at uh, the airport in Tel Aviv, Ben-Gurion International Airport, it's called, they basically welcomed him with open arms. It was amazing. They saw that he was cranky after this very long flight, and they just looked him up and down and said, would you like a wheelchair for your son, sir? We plopped him in a wheelchair and got him through the various, uh, through, into the airport and so forth. And they said, hang on, let's uh, go get a, a red cap for you. And they brought the, the vehicle to drive through the airport and so forth and so on. So we piled on, my wife and my son, and as many suitcases as we could. The rest of us walked. It was fine. Got into two taxis to take us from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. My God. Because basically the rule was that as soon as you're clear of the airport, if you're an Israeli citizen coming from abroad, they asked, do you have a place to go? Do you have an address? Well, yes, we had rented an apartment in Jerusalem. That was another long story. I won't go into that now. Okay. Um, but they said, if you have a place to go, then as soon as you're done the airport, you must go directly there and stay there in self-quarantine for 14 days. It's on the honor system. They don't have people knocking on the door to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do. But we wanted to take it seriously. So sure. we found two taxis, loaded half of us into one car and half of us into the other car with lots of suitcases and so forth. At one point, my wife went into a panic and said, where's the cat? Where's the cat? Oh, my no, gosh. The cat was in the side of the cat carrier with a bunch of suitcases on top of him, and he was sitting meowing piteously. Oh. So, yeah, so we got him out. He was fine. So we got <laughs> him out and got our taxi rides to Jerusalem. But we did all of that. We got into our apartment. My wife's relatives in Israel, bless them. Set the place up. We had uh, sheets on the beds. There was food in the kitchen. How long did you stay at home? How long did you stay in quarantine? Aside from the 14 days, Israel has had on and off stay-at-home orders. So how did that affect you? It's complicated. Basically, in Israel, just as in the United States, just as in countries all over the world, we have this very serious situation, and nobody is completely certain of what the right thing to do is. The Israeli government is floundering a little bit, as other governments are, each in their own way. And you've probably seen in the news that every country is handling this a little bit differently. So Israel is doing the best it can. None of us have any guidance in this, really. And Israel, had a, Israel is one of the first countries to go into complete lockdown. That was before we got there. 
And when we came, the Israel was sort of in semi-open state. You could walk around. A lot of stores were open. A lot of shops were open. Some Israelis were taking the mask order more seriously than others. But Israelis can be kind of a contrary bunch. It's uh, part of the local charm. <laughs> so I, I saw plenty of Israelis wearing, you know, the, the, the surgical masks, the disposable surgical masks. Yeah. Uh, some of them... Uh, have their noses sticking out. Some of them have their mouths sticking out. Some of them have their chins sticking out. <laughs> so that does a lot of good. People, I, I saw some people wearing the mask dangling from one ear. I'm not quite sure what that was intended to accomplish. That helped a lot, on right? One, right. One notable occasion, I saw somebody who had the surgical mask. He had both loops of the mask uh, on one wrist. <laughs> so... So his left wrist was very, very safe from coronavirus. Isn't that special? Uh, I can't speak to the safety of his right wrist. Anyway, Israelis are wonderful. It's, there's an interesting bit of culture shock coming to Israel and realizing that Americans and Israelis are very compatible in many ways. But that does not mean in any way that Israelis are like Americans. Yeah. You can have a conversation with an Israeli and for a long time... Things are just flowing and you say, yeah, yeah, I'm interacting the way I'm used to interacting with people in America and everything's fine. And then something comes in out of left field and you say, whoa, where did that come from? Israelis don't think like Americans for the most part. No. And, and their sense of logic is not like ours. And the way in which they behave with other people and communicate with other people, you think they mean one thing, but they really mean something else entirely. This can manifest itself in many ways. Israelis, for example, have a well-deserved reputation for being very blunt, okay? They're not interested in sugarcoating. They will tell it like it is. They're not terribly interested in whether you like it or not. The old joke is that if an Israeli thinks you're a jerk, he will say to you, you're a jerk. And if he's told to apologize, he will say, I'm sorry, you're a jerk. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and there's nothing wrong with this. It, it takes some getting used to. Another difference that I find very interesting is... In, the United States is a very large country, so large that it often takes people by surprise. I've heard stories of people coming from Europe, from Japan, who fly into Los Angeles and say, oh, uh, we have a meeting in Salt Lake City. That's okay. We'll just rent a car and drive from Los Angeles to Salt Lake City. <laughs> no, you don't do that. Yeah. You spend several days on the road doing that. People don't realize just how big the United States is. And one of the results of this is that people can live their entire lives in the United States, never stepping outside of the United States. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's an awful lot to see and an awful lot to do in the United States. You know, I know people, adults, who have never set foot outside of the county they grew up in, in America. It's amazing. But you can get to thinking that the United States is the whole world. You can get to thinking that everybody in the whole world thinks the way Americans do, because that's all you know. Israelis aren't like that. First of all, Israel is very much a melting pot of people from all over the world, all different cultures, kind of the way the United States was about 100 years ago. You can still walk down the street and hear people talking half a dozen to a dozen different languages all around you. Israel is also a very small country in the middle of a rather volatile neighborhood. It's tiny. It's like the size of the state of Vermont. And the result is that Israelis do not easily fall into this trap of thinking that they are the center of the universe. Israelis know that they're not. Israelis know that there's a big world out there with a lot of big players, a lot of them much bigger and stronger than Israel is. And so Israelis are used to thinking of themselves as, a, as the underdog that way. As I say, this is, presents a point of view that can catch you by surprise if you're not expecting it. 
you've been out in on and off because they the stay at home orders have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone. So what what is the situation now? Well, you were speaking of the on again off again. Uh, Israel went into lockdown rather early in the coronavirus cycle, and then things opened up and things seemed to be fine. But then the coronavirus numbers in the hospitals start to spike again. And in particular, well, Israel is the Jewish state, the only country in the world with a majority Jewish population. And in September, we were headed into the Jewish high holidays, which is very much a family-oriented thing where families get together just as a matter of course. And so the Israeli government was expecting a nightmare of coronavirus spiking during the holidays because of the holidays. And so just before the holidays started, the Israeli government clamped down hard again, and there was another lockdown, which basically lasted for the duration of the holidays and a little bit longer. And the holidays at this time of year in Israel last for several weeks. This isn't a short term. So being confined for that length of time was a problem. And during that time, Israelis were allowed to venture out of their homes to a radius of, they started out saying 500 meters, later they extended that to 1,000 meters, which mostly had the effect of keeping families from getting together, kind of the way Americans do on Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, which unfortunately was the point. But this new second lockdown order, it was intended to keep people at home during the holidays, and a lot of Israelis were upset about this, but I think there was a general understanding that, yes, this was intentionally inconveniencing people during the holidays and that that was on purpose because the idea was to prevent further spread of the virus. Did it help? The lockdown seems to have helped, and they're now talking about a reopening very slowly. For example, this week, not all of the public schools are open, but the kindergartens are open. They're talking about some of the other schools later on. Since the coronavirus has much more strongly affected old people than young people, there's a certain logic to this. Now, Daniel, I'm really interested to hear about the program you're taking. Tell us about that. This is a one-year MBA program. Israel is in kind of an interesting sweet spot as far as that's concerned, because higher education in Israel is heavily subsidized. Israel has some of the best colleges in the world. So it's an interesting sweet spot for getting a very good quality education for a very low price. So tell us about your coursework. What are you going to be doing this year? This year, I am in a one-year MBA program at Hebrew University in Jerusalem with the kind of coursework you might expect, I suppose, from a from one-year MBA program. It's rather concentrated to get it in one year. So this year, I'm signed up for 50 credits, doing some basic stuff, introduction to finance and financial accounting and marketing management, microeconomics, business strategy, internet technology, elements of organizational behavior, human resources, specialized classes, creativity and innovation in organization, Introduction to Venture Capital, Seminar and Management Ventures, Impact Investment Growth Strategies. I will be doing an internship with a local startup. There there are a number of different possibilities, different industries in which this could work. I was offered the the opportunity to intern with various really exciting Israeli startups. Uh, I should point out, by the way, Israel has been called Startup Nation, and it really is true. The number of startups per capita in Israel is one of the highest in the world, if not the highest in the world. Last I heard, there are something like 7,000 startup companies in Israel right now. Wow. I'm not talking about startups that have gone on to do good things later on. I'm talking about startups that are in the startup phase right now. 
Israelis are amazing that way. They come up with these amazing blue sky ideas. And sometimes they just seem utterly ridiculous until someone somehow makes it work. A lot of them fall through because that's what happens. You have a blue sky idea, you take risks, some of the ideas fall through, some of them don't. Now we're going to have to take a short break, but we'll be right back. I want to hear about some of these innovative ideas. And then we'll talk about some of the other things that are going on in Israel right now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. Well, AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. Join us, we're in this together, and we consider you part of our family in our crusade to share the news, commentary, and agenda that can lead America back again. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Daniel, I'd like to know a little bit more about your program, and then I want to know about what's going on in Israel now and what you think about it. Tell us about some of the really amazing entrepreneurial efforts that come from Israel. We've heard of some of the amazing advances that have come from Israeli companies. Some of us drive using Waze, for example, which, which was an Israeli company, which was an attempt to combine a mapping technology with a chat technology. Yeah. You can drive and see the maps, but you can also chat with other drivers, and other drivers can tell you which roads are the good ones. You know, beware, speed trap ahead, that sort of thing. Lots of these technologies, the, the camera in a pill that was developed here in Israel, a, a lot of just really amazing stuff. So... There's almost an embarrassment of riches here in terms of what sort of startup I might wind up interning with. I have many possibilities here. Chances are I will wind up interning with a local venture capital firm where I will have a job uh, or internship job uh, investigating various startups for them and writing up reports on the strengths and weaknesses of various startups. My preference would be to work it from the venture capital angle and then go to the startups and work it from the other angle, from what it's like inside the startups who are looking for the venture capital, so that I become very familiar with both sides of that. Will you be able to do that? I think so. I hope so. A lot of people that might otherwise have traveled long distances to come to Israel for the wonderful educational opportunities here, uh, a lot of people are staying home. Some of the 
resources have dried up. The result was that I wound up signing up for the MBA program. And they told me, oh, and you qualify for the 10% early bird discount. <laughs> oh, so my already low tuition is lower. And I said, um, I'm going to need to talk to someone about signing up for health insurance. Oh, don't worry about that. You have health insurance through the university. Okay, well, I need to talk about health insurance for my family. Oh, we'll just um, add a scholarship on. Uh, we'll tack a $1,000 scholarship on, and, um, and that'll cover health insurance for your wife. And we'll, we'll, we'll help you find some low deals for your kids. They're, they're bending over backwards for me here. It's wonderful. <laughs> That's great. And, and it is a very good program. The people have been very friendly, been very helpful. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here doing what I'm doing. And that's quite apart from the wonder, the just breathtaking wonder of finding myself in Jerusalem. I should say a little bit about that, actually. Yes, you should. Um, okay. Tell me about what it's like living in Jerusalem and, and what's going on. What do you see day to day? If you listening have not visited Jerusalem, let me tell you that you should. You most certainly should. It's a place like no other in the world. Jerusalem is a, a city of amazing contrasts. It is a very concentrated city. This is something I have difficulty getting across to people sometimes. Israel is a very small but very concentrated country. It packs a huge punch in a very, very small spot. So Jerusalem is a very walkable city. I call it a people-sized city. Kind of like Boston that way. You couldn't dream of walking across Los Angeles on your own. But you can do that in Boston, and you can do that in Jerusalem. As it happens, the rental apartment that we found is in Musrara, which is a neighborhood of Jerusalem that is literally right outside the old city gates. Two blocks away from our apartment, we can get to the new gate, or we can go in a different direction and get to the Damascus gate, or we can go in a different direction and get to Jaffa gate. For those of you who are, may not be familiar with Jerusalem, there is an old city, and there's a new city. The old city has an ancient wall around it, and that wall has gates, the Jaffa Gate, the New Gate, and so forth. And that's what Daniel is describing. I went inside the New Gate with two of my boys just to have a bit of an adventure in there, look around and so forth. At a certain point, I looked up and I saw the equivalent of a road sign. It was just a sign that said in English and Hebrew and Arabic, turn left to get to the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock. Turn left to get to the Western Wall. Turn left to get to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It, it came crashing down on me, the enormity of this. Not only that I am within very easy walking distance of some of the holiest sites in the entire world to three major religions, okay? Uh, I, I can walk to where the... Dome of the Rock is, and the Mosque of Al-Aqsa and Mosque of Omar. I can walk to where the Western Wall is, holiest site for Jews. I can walk to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the site of the crucifixion and of the, the tomb of Jesus. And not only are they all just right here, but I turn left for all of them. It's not like <laughs> go this way for one, go that way for another. No, turn left and you get to all of them. I tell people sometimes that you could walk in the old city of Jerusalem and you see a street sign that says Via Dolorosa. And some tourists will say, oh, wow, that's amazing. They actually named a street after the historic Via Dolorosa, the path that Jesus took with the cross. And they say, no, that's not what this means. The street sign is called Via Dolorosa because Jesus walked here. 
He walked here and he came down this way and he took a left. That's what it means. On and these stones. On these stones. Pretty much. Those stones have not been replaced in 2,000 years. It's just incredible. Yes. And, and the history is all around you. It's in, in little things. In, uh, just look, you, you walk down the street and, you, and you'll see a plaque that commemorates something that happened. And, and maybe it's something that happened 100 years ago or maybe it's something that happened 1,000 years ago. Because it's all here. The amazing quantity of history that soaks this place is just incredible. And, you know, the tourists come to Israel and they spend two weeks here and uh, they will almost inevitably go home with a profound feeling of having had a spiritual experience, whether they're religious or not. And they will almost inevitably say, OK, I've got a long list of things I wish we had had time for. Yeah, yeah. It's just a very concentrated country with a lot of really amazing, wonderful stuff. It turns out I can go out of my apartment balcony and I can see the old city right there. I can see the Dome of the Rock looming there, this, that beautiful gold dome. I, I, I can see it. It's right there. It's, it's just incredible. When we have the opportunity to go into the old city, I will undoubtedly take my boys to the Western Wall and point out the difference and say, okay, so here we can see the difference. These are the stones that were put there by Herod the Great. And here are the newer stones that are put on top of that. Here are some of the older stones that were there before Herod got there. Uh, the, the sense of history is just amazing. And this is partly why spending this year in Jerusalem, in Israel in general, but in Jerusalem, is just so meaningful to me. That's awesome. It sounds like it's, a, it's much more than just going to a place and going to a year at school and then coming home. It's, this is something that sounds so enriching. And I can remember when I was living in Israel and traveling, and people would say to me, I mean, I traveled outside of Israel as part of my work, and then I would come home to Israel. And I remember people saying to me, particularly evangelical Christians, saying to me that I, I went to Israel and it was a life-altering experience because I was able to walk on the stones where Jesus walked and I went to the Mount of Beatitudes and I was standing where Jesus stood and so forth. And all of these things that are in the Bible are right there. And when you go into the old city, you're walking on stones that Jesus walked on. And for a Christian, that's amazing. Occasionally, you in fact see groups of Christians in the old city of Jerusalem, not this year, unfortunately, because of coronavirus, but practically any other year, you will see Christians following the path of the Via Dolorosa. As a pilgrimage, sometimes you will actually see a tourist attempting to carry a cross. There, there, there are many other aspects of this that are remarkable. The thing is that, of course, if you go back 2,000 years, if you go back to the time of Jesus, this Jerusalem was a Roman town. Okay. Jerusalem had a cardo, and it was set up like a Roman town with columns and people in togas and all the rest of that. And, uh, and that means that archaeologically, digging up Roman coins is not all that rare here. I believe it was uh, Abba Iban, who was an Israeli diplomat back in, in the day, who liked to say that Israel may be the only country in the world where a 10-year-old boy can dig in his backyard, find a 2,000-year-old piece of pottery, and see the inscription on it and read it and understand it. <laughs> this was his way of saying that Israel is in many ways the oldest country and the newest country. Um, in fact, I had an experience. When I, was, when I lived in Israel as a teenager, 
I was a teenager and I was going to an Israeli school and studying in Hebrew and all the rest of that. And at a certain point, someone told me that I should go to the Israel Museum to the Shrine of the Book, which is a special building that houses the Dead Sea Scrolls on permanent display. I had not seen it, and this person told me it was a crime that I'd never seen it, and so she took me to see it. And as we were walking along and seeing these 2,000-year-old fragments of parchment under glass, and she was marveling and saying, do you realize that any Israeli school child can just read this? It's 2,000 years old, but an Israeli school child can just read this. I was a teenager with a teenage attitude, and so I gave her a withering look and said, I'm an Israeli school child, and I started reading them aloud to her. <laughs> it was an interesting moment. And, and the, the amazing thing is that after a year in Israeli public schools, I do expect that I will be able to take my boys to the Shrine of the Book and point it out, and they will start reading it to me. That's nice. They've been recently been finding all kinds of co coins and seals. And in fact, oh, yeah. a schoolboy found something. I can't remember what it was, but he found something that was like 2,000 years old. There have been a number of discoveries of that sort recently. I, I, the, the discovery that you're talking about, I, I saw that. I don't remember the details of it at the moment, but I believe this was a 10-year-old boy who was digging, and he actually found a cache of, of, of gold coins. Gold coins, I believe, from the Roman period. I'm sure the boy was a little broken up about not being able to keep any of them, but that's the way it goes. Uh, listen, you, you talk about the connection. The archaeological finds around here are just incredible, and they're all over the place in, in terms of seeing the evidence of when the Romans were here, evidence of the Jewish presence here going way back. It's not difficult to find Jewish coins inscribed in Hebrew going back 2,000 years. But sometimes you find more than that, which is really amazing. So, for example, a few years ago, there was an archaeologist who got kind of a bug in her ear. She had this thing that she had to do. She said, you know, we of course know where the Temple Mount is and we know where the temple used to be, but King David built a palace. He was a king, he had a palace, naturally. And the Bible talks about his palace. And we haven't found that. And given that there are some people who uh, have the silly idea that King David was a fictional character, uh, it would be nice to find some of the hard evidence. This was King David's palace. This is where he lived. So what she did was she read the Bible. And she read the descriptions of where the palace was. And she said, okay, gentlemen, we're digging here. And she found it. The Bible says, for example, that King David's palace was made from cedars imported from Lebanon. And in fact, she found a building that is not found normally in this part of the world. Normally, this is the sort of thing that would be found in a place like Lebanon, mean to say that they not only brought in the cedars from Lebanon, they also probably brought in a Lebanese architect, and they built King David's palace. Do we know that it was King David's palace specifically? Yes. The measurements all check out. There was something else there that just completely blew my mind when I read about it, which was that she found a seal. You may remember that back in the day, oftentimes you would not sign a document, instead you would seal it. And a person would have their own personal seal, which they would seal a, a parchment document with ink, like a stamp, or perhaps they would, they would close a document with wax and then impress their seal into the wax, okay? 
And this seal had a name on it. And it was a biblical name in Hebrew. And it is someone who is mentioned, I believe, in uh, 2 Samuel. The name is mentioned twice. He was a minor official in, uh, in King David's court. So uh, in modern terms, he might have been like an assistant to the undersecretary or something like that. But his name is mentioned in the Bible and his seal was found. What the architect said, I never thought much about this name before, but he's a real person to me now. We have his business card in our hands. That's amazing. This connection, this very palpable, very physical connection. It really brings history to life, doesn't it? It sure does. Although I should explain that I think there are still some people who come to Israel and fully expect the place to have been left pristine the way it was 2,000 years ago. It's not, it's not that way. Israel takes the historical sites very, very seriously. But yes, there are modern roads that will take you to the old city of Jerusalem, and you will see the, the telephone wires, and, uh, and the stores all have free Wi-Fi, and so forth and so on. The point is that you can dig almost anywhere in Jerusalem and find stuff that's a thousand years old. You know, it's, it's just amazing. Walking down the street from the apartment where I'm, where I'm staying right now, we just see these, these things. There's this very impressive old building that is an Ethiopian church that's two or three hundred years old. So we, we just see these, these, these things. They're all over the place. The street that I'm living on has an interesting name that way also. There's an old wisecrack. Uh, somebody once said that in South America, a politician can give a passionate patriotic speech just by rattling off a list of dates. Okay? <laughs> if you could imagine an American politician just thundering, July 4th, 1776, and everybody applauds. Okay? That sort of thing. In Israel, you can do some of, something like that by rattling off a list of numbers. Okay? Yeah. Um, kind of like how in the United States where some people might say, remember the Alamo? Well, my street, the street where I'm living in this rental apartment, was named after people who said, remember the 78. I live on 78th Street. It's not numbered the way New York City streets are numbered, where after 78th Street, you have 79th Street and 80th Street and so forth and so on. No, this street was named after 78 Israelis who lost their lives in a particular historical incident. And the street is named after them. It's a terrible story. Uh, it happened just a month before Israel declared its independence. On April 13th, 1948, a convoy of doctors and nurses going to the enclave of Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus was attacked by hundreds of Arab fighters. And 78 of the doctors and nurses were slaughtered in this attack. And the British soldiers who were supposed to be protecting them didn't. So Israel remembers and memorializes the people who died that day. In Israel, you see things named after numbers all the time. And usually there'll be a small plaque that says what this particular number represents. And so you have a lot of little places dotting the landscape in Israel with names like that. Thank you, Daniel, for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it, and your story is fascinating. I'm really glad that we had this time to talk. Good luck to all of you for a wonderful and very productive and memorable year.
we hope that this will be a very good and very positive experience for all of us in a whole bunch of ways. I have great confidence that it's going to be an amazing year. Thank you, Daniel. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.